Podcast 196, From the Dolls to the Daisy, the band pulls an ace. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Welcome back to your podcast. I am Ken Mills. Today I'll be joined by Julian Gill and Gary Schaller as we discuss From the Dolls to the Daisy, The Band Pulls an Ace. Couple show notes right off the top. I'd like to send a shout out to the Kiss Room House Band. As you have heard, we recreated our opening and we have also recreated our closing using the Kiss Room House Band as our backup band. Thank you to everybody in the Kiss Room House Band and Matt Porter and everybody over there and to all the musicians in that band. Thank you so much. We did that in an attempt to be compliant to not playing actual KISS music on the show at times. Um, Podcasting is a bit of a more competitive sport nowadays, and it's better to be prepared. So going forward, those will be our tracks painstakingly created to sound just like the original with love just for you, our listeners. Uh, Today's show would not have happened had it not been for Julian Gill. We have to send a special shout-out to Julian. Thank you for all you've done for the KISS community. And this show is seriously would not be here without his help. Uh, It had been recorded after we did the Wicked Lester episodes, our trilogy that we did, episodes 172, 173, and 174. And it just wound up on the cutting room floor, you know, with everything from lockdown to challenges at work among other things real life right so thank you julian gill for your kindness for editing this episode and getting it to us and all the people who love the podcast and what you do over at the kiss faq podcast thank you so much as i said earlier this episode pretty much goes back to the end of episode 174 in our history look and we've done some really cool stuff in our history series. We did a specialized show on each one of the original members and right on up to this point. Then we did the Wicked Lester story, and now here we are. So without further ado or further don't, so please join me, Ken Mills, Gary Schaller, and Julian Gill as we discuss history from the Dolls to the Daisy. So today we're going to talk about from when Peter joined to Ace joining up till the driving around and coming up with the name and the logo, okay? We are peeling back the layers of history. We are going back to a time that is really, you know, when a person reads a Kiss book, doesn't matter who's written it or an article about Kiss, this section in time that we're talking about may get one or two lines depending on the book or the article right gary yeah this is the one of those eras that we talk about being so interesting because there's just never enough about it uh and and also it's uh it's kiss at their uh rawest i guess or most raw i'm not sure um and and certainly the genesis of a lot of what became classic kiss Mm -hmm. about 152 days approximately so it's weird you don't think about it that way, but we'll we'll lay it out. Yeah. So we're going to pick up where we left off at the end of our Wicked Lester discussions, and we're going to call this the last gasp of something called Wicked Lester, this chapter. We're looking at the end of Wicked Lester and the beginning of this thing that would be known as KISS. You know, you got to say it that way with echo and reverb on it because KISS stops becoming a word that is about smooching your girlfriend or getting a kiss from your mom. It becomes something, and it's it's never quite put back in that old bottle once again. You can't put the toothpaste back in the, into the tube, right? So <laughs> we're basically looking at from August 1972 to January 1973 which is approximately 150 days. Mm. You know, just imagine that it's like springtime and someone says, hey, you've got 152 days before Christmas, you know, so, or in, for the sake of this conversation, Kissmas, right? Uh, But 
you know, we, we tend to think of these things as this happened and this happened and this happened. And then we're on to, and then alive came out. Right. So that's usually the, the context that this time frame is usually discussed, but we're going to go back to where we talked about Peter Chris placing the ad in August, 1972 and Gene and Paul find Peter Chris. So this is where we're at. Okay. Mm. All right. So, Julian, what do you know about this time right here? It was the beginning. Before <laughs> there was light, there was darkness. Before there was noise, there was silence. No, I, you, you, you go back and you start at the beginning, and it, like you said, it's the very much the start of everything is that ad that Peter placed in Rolling Stone. I think it's 106, August 1972, which Gene apparently discovers and gives him a call and, and and you know all of that's been kind of covered to death you know about them calling peter up and peter's having a decorating party yeah and uh so so we all know that story and peter joins thinking that this record is coming out and it is of course the wicked lester album that we detailed in our three-part series on wicked lester episodes uh, 172 173 and 174 peter thought he was joining this band that has this record coming out, and it was in an article that it was mentioned in. Right, Gary? Right, just to review it, it, articles in which Peter is quoted as talking about it, right? That was something that we we talked about from Lydia's book, that you know, not only was Peter kind of potentially wooed into the band with the promise of a, of a record deal and an album, uh, but he also promoted Wicked Lester as Wicked Lester in at least one interview uh, in which he does discuss being a member of that band and the, and the fact that there's this record that will soon be released, mm-hmm. which is such a weird thing to think about. Um, that period, that transitional period where Peter is a member of, of the band Wicked Lester. Um, and there's not much to, I guess there's not much to say about it, but it's still interesting to me. See, I almost wonder if you can say that Peter Chris was a member of Wicked Lester, because at this point, Gene and Paul are only using Wicked Lester to start something different you know you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. and right. uh this last gasp of something called wicked lester would pretty much have the final mix of the album uh put out and basically lead to a another attempt to try to woo the record company back which happened on november 20th through the 28th there's no exact date of when we know this was in 1972 when they played a showcase at Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street Loft in New York City with a reported audience of five. Now, before we get to that, let's talk about how we got from Peter Chris joining this band to that performance in November 1972. Because Julian came up with this great phrase that the band would be delestering a few of these songs that Wicked Lester already had. No flutes. Yes, no flutes. And this is where Peter Chris <laughs> is really important. And he was kind of an impartial third party because he, he did have some experience in bands. And Gene and Paul, I feel, were looking to him as a voice of experience, right? Wouldn't you say that, Julian? That's the kind of impression that I've always taken out of Peter joining the band. At this point, he's a guy that's got hundreds of gigs under his belt under all sorts of circumstances, you know, playing mob mob joints, playing on the road, playing with established names, opening for bands. So he really had a lot of experience at this point. Paul and Gene had not performed a lot. Gene obviously did do stuff up in the Catskills when he's in university, college, um, but not to the extent that Peter did as a guy who was paying his way and making a living on this, you know, club grind. Or a gig grind. So I, I really always think of him having those extra few years on Gene and quite a few years on Paul that he came in as the experienced person, as someone who'd been a band leader, had done the bookings, had done paperwork, of which, you know, we've got a lot in collectors' hands, that he was much more than just a drummer. He was a guy who had contacts. But number one, he had experience. He also had a record out, too, right? With Chelsea? Or am I making that? Yeah, up? as G- yeah, no, as Gene and Paul know, having a record out doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> but yes, he, he his his album had at least been released with Chelsea, and of course they'd started working on the the second one. Mm-hmm. Right, which is not to say that you know Gene and Paul also hadn't appeared on 
record, but I think probably on, if I'm not mistaken, uncredited, right? And uh, as backup singers, um, and certainly not with the same cachet as, you know, it being your band, the way that, you know, it's Peter's band and he's, uh, you know, he's got his own thing with Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they were on at least one compilation record too. I, I yeah, Chelsea had a song, hard rock music included, on the MCA Sound Conspiracy that uh, it. came out. Uh, it was a sampler of all kind of the labels that were distributed by MCA. So Decca being one of them. It was I think there's also Virgil Fox on it of all things, and they had a nice little write up. But that was just uh, that competed directly with Warner Brothers. If anyone remembers their Lost Leaders, you know, obviously Kiss turns up on Hard Goods later, which was one of those. But MCA approached theirs as selling it as a full price LP, so it wasn't like a sample. It was a sampler, but it wasn't one that they were throwing away at a discount. They were kind of going for you know an audience to pay full price to hear these bands at a you know, glass mm-hmm. harp. Mm-hmm. And there's also stories too of, uh, and on, on at least one occasion, Gene and Paul going to see Peter play live. Is that right? At the King's Lounge. Yep, that's where they went to to see him do his thing after or before. Uh, the, again, the timeline, and I, I'm not even going to try and make sense of it. I'll just answer your question. Yeah, they went to see him perform in the King's Lounge, and that's where Paul really dug his singing more than his drumming and knew that he was the right guy mm. to kind of come into the band with them, and they wanted to start working with him. So they'd seen him in action. And you know what's interesting, though, about the drumming thing is that I, I remember years ago playing uh, one of the first eight Kiss records for somebody who was uninitiated, so to speak, but who liked music and cared a lot about it and had a kind of open mind about things. So he didn't, he wasn't listening with like, oh, it's Kiss, forget it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the things that he said that really stuck with me is he said, it's interesting to hear, it's interesting and good. And uh, like, it's a positive thing hearing this hard rock music, but the drummer is kind of a jazzy drummer like a big band drummer and i know that peter has talked about himself as a big band drummer but i had never thought of it that way to listen to early kiss and hear that but of course now i can't unhear it and it's true and unique it, it's unique to their sound very much so i i, I would agree with that 100 percent uh so we've got this record that nobody's really going to do anything with and gene and paul have been through the ringer with wicked lester and they now realize that they have this name but they don't have a concept whatever they were wanting to be this was not it and the new york dolls are happening at this point right julian yep by the, by this time they've started to work the new york scene there i would have to think that gene was aware of them and kind of them being groundbreaking. But, you know, it was very early days for the dolls as well, so let's be very clear on that. They'd started to make scenes. They're about to go to England on their first, I think that's their first, you know, international trip. Canada, not counting. But uh, they're playing just about every venue in New York City, particularly the ones like the Mercer Art Center. You also have David Bowie doing his thing, and you know we've we've seen a lot of stuff happening. A lot of stuff is happening and uh, bubbling up through the water to the surface uh, to the point where we'd get an Alice Cooper and all of this. So there was something going on, and Kiss knew that if they were just going to be Wicked Lester, what was on that album, it wasn't going to translate into anything that anyone would really pay attention to, especially on the New York club scene, right? Mm-hmm. And I and to that end, I want to just read a quote from uh, Lydia's amazing book, Sealed with a Kiss. For the meeting, Peter decided to wear an outfit he had found while on honeymoon in England, a black velvet jacket with gold velvet insets on the shoulders, which he matched with black velvet pants. Peter was told the name of this band was Wicked Lester. We kept saying to each other, what kind of a name is that for a band? What does Wicked Lester mean? After the interrogation that Peter received during the first phone call from Gene, we expected to see two guys that would visually knock you out. To our surprise, we didn't see anyone who stood out, and we actually walked right past them thinking we were stood up. We had to stop and question each other for a brief moment. I suggested that maybe these very gawky guys were the two we were to meet. I was right. It was Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, or more accurately, Stanley Eisen and Gene Klein. Mm-hmm. So they had not yet become rock stars. They were working right. towards it, but they had yet not really gotten that vibe yet. Peter had. 
<laughs> no, and they were just they, they were they were just down at Electric Lady. They were just doing work. I mean, come on. This ad was in the well August thirty first issue of Rolling Stone. So that means this is September, which is very much in the tail end of you know the work going on on the Wicked Lester album in the studio. They're in there. They're actually I think doing work for Ron Johnson for the Lynn Christopher album. You know, so background vocals. So they're not mm-hmm. dressed to impress. You know, they're dressed to work. They're dressed for comfort. They're dressed as they were, as personalities. And as Jean's made very clear about the problems with Wicked Lester visually, that it was like the United Nations, that it had no theme. There was no image. There was no style. That was everything that was lacking. Why do you think, you know, they quote bands like Slade as being the ones that impressed them in the glam scene? Or as you've already mentioned, David Bowie, who had an image, or Gary Glitter, you know, curse his name for eternity, had an image back then. Uh, Those bands, you know, and... Even your more working class mm-hmm. kind of acts, be they the Who, who had the power, weren't, but weren't exactly visually stimulating in terms of costumes or anything that went on. They, they backed their, their image up with the power of the music and the performance. So you have all those elements that Gene and Paul were nothing of, you know, at this point which is a perfect reflection of what the problems were with Wicked Lester and why they wanted to change that dynamic when they looked at what was that phrase that he used. They looked like the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And that is something that doesn't work. It lacks symmetry. It lacked any visual appeal. And it certainly didn't stand out. And that's a great comment from Lydia that these were two nondescript guys that, you know, they could have been anyone. Mm -hmm. They were no one. And of course, later that would work to their advantage when they became someone and needed uh, Clark Kent to the Superman. Great right? point. Like being Great no point. one, the anonymity really worked when they actually had something special. On the other hand, but not yet. Precisely. I mean, that ties that ties in so beautifully with what they become. They're also like a caterpillar that will become a butterfly. Mm-hmm. You know, for for a similar sort of analogy. But you know, certainly the superhero thing. These are nobodies. These are working stiffs. They're doing the grind. They're just doing whatever there is to be done around Electric Lady, and all they have is hopes and dreams. So at some point, the band decides to start rehearsing and be forming this new trio, whatever the name is going to be. And uh, as you wrote. Julian, that they would have to de-lester a few of these songs. And let's take a look at these songs. Simple Type, Keep Me Waiting, She, Lover All I Can, and other songs that would start to take shape are Watching You, Baby Let Me Go, Black Diamond, and of course, Life in the Woods. So we've heard the songs from Wicked Lester that have the flutes and the -the over-the-top arrangements at some point. And they knew that because of things like the dolls and T-Rex, that it had to be more rock and roller, right? It, it, it had to be more in your face. It had to be more street. Mm-hmm. And Peter Chris, I think, really helped make that happen because he came from the streets. So he was just part of that puzzle, part of that piece that all fitted together. So we go from not only learning these songs, but altering these songs to to what they became known as when they were performed by the band Kiss. So any thoughts on that? Lydia talks about listening to those songs develop over time. She says, "Um, I remember going to the loft after work to meet Peter. I would sit there listening to the three of them play their original songs, which at the time didn't mean anything to anybody. Deuce, Strutter, Black Diamond, Firehouse, and She, to name a few. Little by little, I grew to like them. And then she says, Gina Paul wrote and sang all the songs, which was something that Peter wasn't used to. In all his previous bands, Peter did most of the singing, and he missed it. Interesting. And truthfully, Peter's a darn darn good singer, too. So <laughs> I don't, you know, it's understandable. Yeah, you know, he's a, fant- he's a fantastic singer, and there is plenty, you know, with him out there. But there are people who do, who were in bands with him, who says he did not sing quite as much as been we've been led to believe. But, of course, you always have those band dynamics that, you know, you probably don't want to 
have someone taking more credit even for a band from 1965 that didn't make it so right. it, it's still interesting when people come out of the woodwork to give their first-hand account of that period obviously to this time all we have is you know what peter's been allowed to say in books like nothing to lose what lydia has said in a very much a, a book that Peach, peter doesn't sanction um in sealed sealed with a kiss and of course his own autobiography but we're so lucky to have all that Wicked Lester that we've already talked about. All these different versions of it where you can kind of hear the development happening in real time. And then you jump forward and there are obviously the recordings of Kiss doing songs like Simple Type. The rearranging of them are born in these rehearsals after Peter joins Gene and Stanley you know, in whatever band they want to be called at this point. So I, I think it's pretty clear that it's Wicked Lester as far as Lydia is concerned. Uh, I don't know what Peter might think on that. I don't recall from his book him, you know, being very specific about which band he had joined. But they're starting to work on ideas. Look now at, at the music that Peter had been performing. He had been all over the spectrum. Mm -hmm. A lot of R&B. A lot of traditional rock and roll, so stuff from the 1950s, and you start hearing that coming into like reinterpretations of simple type. And you just have to imagine that these are three guys woodshedding in a rehearsal loft, just going over the songs again and again. Someone chimes in with an idea, let's try it this way, let's try it that way. You know, eight hours at a stretch, just continuing to thrash these songs to death until they start taking a different form that's more rock and roll. And Simple Type's a great example of what happens to a Wicked Lester song. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that evolution was something that they just kind of discovered where they were going? Or that they set out to be a harder, heavier, more straightforward band? And the reason why I ask that is if you listen to Chelsea, yeah, and I know that you're absolutely right. The music Peter had been doing was really all kinds of things all over the map. But in some ways, if you listen to Chelsea, it bears more resemblance to Wicked Lester than either Wicked Lester or Chelsea do to Kiss. Right, right. I really think that it was a conscious effort to become something that was compatible with what was happening, with what they were seeing in the rock press in the local area, what they were hearing on the radio. Things were changing a lot, right? Like we had just come off the flower power peace and love hippie stuff and the Beatles and everything. Mm -hmm. And now you've got to put on a show if you're going to get people's ears. You've got to give them something to look at if you're going to get their ears. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, uh, you know, even in a lot of what we call classic rock, it's one of the reasons Kiss has always been kind of talked badly about in the sense that they're more gimmick than they are, you know, delivering the goods, right? More gimmick than goods. Yeah. But the reality is, is that Kiss's music stands up like it does the same way that David Bowie's does or Alice Cooper does or the Dolls do or T-Rex or whoever. But that this was the kind of music that you had to be making in order to to get anybody's attention. And I think if they were hanging on to the name Wicked Lester, it was really pretty much only because that is what the record company was still working with. You know what I mean? That was the relationship mm -hmm. that they had. So when we get to the showcase, which happens at the end of November 1972, it's basically for the people at Epic Records, right? Yeah. Just as we're getting to November of 72, uh, again, to Lydia's book, bear in mind, as Julian pointed out, that this is one person's recollection as, as anything is. Despite Peter's plans with Paul and Jean, he continued to play with Lips at the King's Lounge on Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. John Verdi had been replaced by a guy named Dave, who would perform, who would perform with Peter and Stan on the Friday and Saturday night show. Um, this continued throughout October and into early November 1972. By the middle of November, the new Wicked Lester had arranged a showcase for the executives from Epic Records, scheduled that later that month at the 23rd Street Loft. Mm -hmm. So Peter, wisely, he was not burning any bridges, I guess. Well, he was also working, right? You know, you, you, yeah. you've, you've got to develop this stuff. It's, it's, it's the smartest thing to do. So we've got this showcase that was essentially the final nail in Wicked Lester's coffin. 
and it marked the birth of an unnamed new band. Two dates were purportedly scheduled for the band to play showcases for Epic Records to present the band's new concept. It's not clear whether both dates were used or simply one, the former being the more obvious choice unless they also performed for other labels. As a trio, Gene, Paul, and Peter invited Epic president Don Ellis and A&R man Tom Werman to their rehearsal loft to hear them play some of the new material that they had been working on. Rather than impressing him, though, they alienated him to the point of ultimately severing all ties with their former record label. Gene recalled the disaster. We played Firehouse, and at the end of the song, we start ringing this bell, and Ellis thinks it's a real fire. So Paul runs over to the corner and grabs a red pail with the word fire on it, and he goes over and throws it at Don, who freaks out as a bucket full of confetti goes all over the place. He gets up and starts to walk out, saying, Okay, thank you. I'll call you. As he's heading out the door, he trips and falls. Then Peter's purportedly drunken brother, who was sitting behind Don, throws up on his feet. We never heard from him again. That's That bit is from Kistry, right? That last bit right there. You've heard of tarring and feathering somebody. <laughs> so, now at this Sorry. point, the band is in basic whiteface indicating that there was a genesis of some concept with makeup so it was already in place and we've seen the pictures from lydia's book where they're like in this i'm going to call them the sailor suit mm -hmm. outfits you know paul's got a beret at one point and it just looks weird but there That's are no makeup too. designs or leather costumes well suspenders are a big thing i mean remember morg for morg anyway it was the 70s that's right so the set list with a reported audience of five people, Tom Warman, Don Ellis, and a few other people, the set list was Deuce, Strutter, and Firehouse. How would you like to go back to that one, guys? Gary, what would you think about that? Put me in, coach. <laughs> How about you, Julian? You know, would, would you like to be at that moment of history? Forget coach. I'll walk. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we, we love KISS, so we want to hear that. But I am, I'm totally open to the possibility that uh, even though art is subjective, I'm open to the possibility that it wasn't very good, you know? Yeah, I'm with Gary on that. But, you know, the holy trinity of KISS songs in embryonic form without Ace, and that just boggles the mind. And that is, I think, one of the few holy grails that I would really love to hear. I would love to hear the trio rehearsing and what that sounded like without a lead guitarist without the benefit of an additional month of rehearsals with said lead guitarist what is paul doing is he doing rhythm is he doing rhythm and a bit of lead what sort of you know guitar is there how has you know the dynamic of having a new drummer a power drummer with a unique style influenced those songs um before they are influenced further by the rehearsals as a four piece so those are just three very very unique pieces of music and i'm sure you know that the concepts aren't fully formed i mean it sounds like the pale of confetti you know all these kind of little sad and pathetic things are mm. very ununified unstructured ill-considered not there yet but it's the seed the seed has been planted. So I want to hear that stuff. I And I, you know, maybe it's uh, on a real and Paul storage locker like that Wicked Lester acoustic take, because it would be absolutely wild to hear that, you know, before Ace comes into the picture and starts, uh, you know, really adding what was missing to the material. Absolute holy grail. You're right. Yeah. So as far as Don Ellis knew, they were passing on Wicked Lester already. Mm -hmm. So he shows up at this loft and there's three guys in white makeup and they throw things at him. So, <laughs> and then he gets vomited on. That's really not the, uh, the direction that he was probably looking for, but there was something about Wicked Lester that he at least came back to see if they were going to do something that might blow his socks off instead of get his socks wet. So... <laughs> Wet, wet with vomit. Yes. But I, I want to I want to interject something that I think is very important here. And this is a little bit of a tangent, and it's also I guess you can take it as a little bit of an advertisement of something I'm working on. I recently interviewed um, 
the person who is responsible for rejecting Aerosmith from Epic in 1972. And he said something that immediately made me think of Wicked Lester. We heard the demo and we didn't hear any singles. Mm. And that, to me, again, it's the same label. It is, they were a very singles and hits oriented label at the time. That was how they operated and what they wanted out of artists, uh, especially of this genre. So if you can think of Aerosmith getting rejected, then I say the same thing applies to Kiss a year later, or not that much later than when this happened to Aerosmith, mm. is the, the A&R listened to Deuce. Is that a single? Well, you can't judge it by what you hear on the first Kiss album. And the same goes for Strutter and Firehouse. Many people, I think, will all agree Strutter would have been a great single. It was a single. It did nothing as a single. So in hindsight, we know that it wouldn't have been a good single because it failed in 1974. Mm -hmm. So what, what these songs actually sounded like as well may be completely different from the versions on the first Kiss album, even if there are elements that kind of draw your attention to, oh yeah, that, you know, I, I can see where that's developing. So I totally get why, you know, an A and R showcase would have been the final nail. You know, first of all, you've got the United Nations of flutes, and they're like, well, here's our new stuff, right. and I could just imagine an A and R guy going, oh my god, the, we, we got to be done with these guys. These guys, they don't know cakes. what they're doing, you know, right? Like they, they like don't know who is, they are. Yeah. They don't know what they want. They don't know what they want to play, and I don't like anything that they're doing. And they also look stupid. And <laughs> they're pulling a tab from rip taylor's playbook with the confetti you know are they a comic act so are they going <clears> to <throat> sing deuce and then do a stand-up routine put a pie in someone's face you know are what are these clowns you had to <laughs> I, I can almost imagine him saying that right well and i also wonder about what they did while they were playing meaning um we know that the choreography uh that, that we came to associate with classic kiss may not have been there at that time because uh, Sean Delaney wasn't there. And I don't know how much of the, the classic Kiss choreography developed naturally just from those four guys, but we do know, or at least we've been told, um, that a lot of their personalities uh, came not just out of the makeup designs, but also from Sean's input into you know how Paul would move on stage, what, what it meant for Gene to be the demon, um, how they would move their guitars and dance in in in, uh, in sync with one another there was no you know, deuce at this way. point it's just probably not it's just like two guys in front no there there, there couldn't have been you, ha you you have to erase all of that right. from your mind yeah. because don't forget that bill and sean were coming from a tv background right you know that was the tool that they bring into that part of the equation later here look at yourselves these are guys who have you know, basically hangers on, you know, Peter's sister's, you know, boyfriends hanging around at the loft. Uh, I wonder if Rick Fox ever made it up there when they were uh, a trio. That'd be an interesting story if, if he hasn't already told it a dozen times over. You know, the same with Lydia. You know, again, these are different sets of eyes looking on rather than someone like Bill O'Coin, who's a producer of a TV show, thinking very visually, or Sean Delaney, who's thinking very artistically, looking at them, looking at their bodies and movement and all of that. You know, these are just guys woodshedding. Again, it's just play the song again, play the song again. No, you need to do this fill here. No, you need to do this bass line, you know, it's bringing all of those things together. It's rudimentary. It has to be. When I do this, you do that. That sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. You know, three guys, if you've ever played with other people and you just get together and you're working on ideas, you're just, you're bouncing things off the wall. And you can imagine Peter saying, well, I used to do this, you know, and Gene and Paul maybe saying, you know, these are the songs. And, you know, a certain amount of artistic friction starting to shape that mold. Uh, or shape that clay would be probably a better better term. I, I just am absolutely fascinated even just talking through this. I'm, I'm like getting excited mm. thinking about what it would have <laughs> been like to be a fly on the wall in that room while these songs are really taking shape. And I want to have folks do something. Uh, 
go get some early footage of Kiss doing Deuce and Strutter and Firehouse and stuff like that. Turn the sound down when you watch it. If you turn the sound down, it can take you away from what you're seeing and what you're hearing, right? They become two different things. If you if you look at that, it's almost like seeing the Beatles perform. You know how the Beatles would do that thing where they all bounce up and down like? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. If you yeah, watch yeah, them course. do Firehouse, that's what you're seeing. So they're going back and forth because instead of just playing a straight-ahead rock song, Peter's drumming is literally rocking them back and forth. They're taking them back to that thing that they loved about the Beatles, where it's four guys that you could tell belong to this thing instead of a bunch of things. And so right. I have to imagine that some of that was germane because that's what they grew up loving, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, to be fair, sure. Like um, th- th- you see a lot of uh, uh, Led Zeppelin in Paul's behavior on stage and mm-hmm. in Ace's behavior on stage too, right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But you're but you're right, Ken. There is a there's like a visual vocabulary to being in Kiss, as original and different as he was. Even Vinnie Vincent somehow moved like a member of Kiss when he became a member of Kiss. If that right. makes sense. Right. This is this is and, what the show is. Um, you become part of the show. Yeah. Right. There's things you do and don't do when you're on stage as like you don't sit cross legged, obviously, but like there's a way to walk and move your body when you're in Kiss that is very much a part of Kiss. I want to talk about and I love this that experiment, by the way, kind of like turning the sound off and watching it because, you know, again, there's that like there's that vocabulary that it's clear as day what Kiss is supposed to look like. Um, And it's and uh, Julian, to your point, the excitement of imagining. Uh, is very real that excitement of imagining what this version was prior to developing that vocabulary to to uh to just go back for a second uh to that november showcase there's something else we kind of glossed over it really quickly but if if lydia's recollection in the book is correct this was the first time they put makeup on was that night that showcase she says they were very excited and even invited some friends down for moral support the guys got dressed prior to the audition, and for the first time, Gene decided to wear makeup, which I had to help him apply. And then it, I don't think it says anything else about the other two guys wearing makeup, but the photos are there, and you've got all three of them in white makeup with lipstick and, and eyeliner and all that stuff, and the weird clothes, right? Like the only, ones who, the only one whose clothes look even remotely kiss-like truly is Peter, because he's dressed in black with silver designs on his shirt. Yeah, sequins and whatnot. But this is the first time. Yeah. Yeah, but but is it, I mean, if that's true, like they, it's a bold thing if you think about it. If you've got like a, if you've got a job interview and it's like, let me also make this the first time that I practice speaking French. Like that's kind of a weird thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, 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 you know, right? going off of what you said, it really was a job interview for a job that they almost had before, right? So if you if you passed on us before, we're going to really give you something here. And from the time that they saw the makeup to the rock and roll to the confetti to the vomit, (laughs) it was a hard pass. (laughs) So, Julian, do you know uh, and Ken as well, do you know if there's any uh, references made by anyone else to them practicing with makeup prior to the November showcase? I'm I'm not aware of it. Um, I'm just looking, and I was right. Rick has commented previously about it. Obviously, nothing to lose about watching them rehearse as a trio, but he doesn't mention anything about them wearing makeup. So, and and again, let's mm. let's let's be very clear in defining makeup because when we say makeup in any kiss related thing, everyone's going to start thinking designs and this is mime white face. So they're really mm-hmm. starting That's with it. a clean, they're starting with a totally clean canvas. That's the way I like to look at it too. Are there, yeah, there's a band called the help. Point? Yes. Jeans are. All right. Uh, jeans are Peter and Paul have red lipstick. Uh, jeans, jeans lips are either they're black or they're silver. His hair is kind of silver too, mm-hmm. but there's a band called the Hello People. Yes, right. And they were like a rock and like a folky rock mime troupe. And this is sort of what Kiss looked like. There was also a band, and I know, I know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned them before on podcast. A, a, a Brazilian band called Secos e Mojados. 
yes. that wore makeup uh, probably around the exact same time. And their makeup was way more developed, looked a lot more like what Kiss became than what we're seeing mm-hmm. in these pictures of Wicked Lester. And of course, you've got the crazy world of Arthur Brown and yes. Alice Cooper and all that stuff. So it was it was something that was happening. David Bowie was wearing makeup. Uh, T-Rex even, you know, everybody was messing around with makeup. So it became the Roy glam Wood. thing to do. Yes, Roy Wood, definitely. And Wizard, all of that. So, so Kiss tries this for the first time. Now, earlier I asked you to turn the sound down. I want to try a little experiment right now. Through the help of some digital magic, we're going to take <laughs> Kiss performing Deuce, and we're going to strip out the lead guitar. And this is where this band now realizes that they have to add someone else. So let's check out Deuce without a lead guitar. to use your imagination this is what it may have sounded like just a little bit that was us trying to approximate why there had to be someone else that came in to join the band because you know as good a guitar player as paul stanley is he couldn't be the ringleader the mc the rhythm guitarist the vocalist and the lead guitarist at the same time so so there was an ad that had to be placed and we go from lester to coventry Julian, you want to tell you? Yeah, let me tell Yeah, I, I just want to take a step back. I don't think Paul ever intended to be all of those things. I think he and Gene, you know, I don't know whether they ever spoke about it or or planned it as such, but I think they, they certainly had an idea of first we got to get it down with our backbeat. Mm-hmm. First we got to get a drummer and get Gene, you know, bass in your drums have got to become one and get all of that nailed down. So he was just kind of filling in roles and get the material. Now we've got the material. Now we, we, we've, we're we performing better as a trio. Now we can bring in that extra ingredient. And if you think about the timeline, and, you know, I do want to give a shout out to Kurt and Jeff and Kiss Alive Forever, because obviously they're the ones who, you know, first came up with the information about those two dates in late November that were booked for the showcase uh, and only one being used and everything. And they've been the gold standard on that side of history for so many years. But, you go from what may have been November the 28th to December the 1st, and that's the next core or key date in history. Paul Stanley places an ad in the Village Voice. So we're talking a matter of days. Yeah. You know, e- even if it was the 20th, you know, a week and a half later, he that's the deadline for getting an ad to run in the December 7th issue. And he just put in a very simple simple ad lead guitarist wanted with flash and ability album out shortly so where does that tie in with kind of what was going on with the epic showcase had they not had the phone call from epic saying forget it we're done with you guys were they still expecting as they've done the work in the studio during the fall that that album was going to be coming out and they were going to be a new band supporting that album what happened with the rest of the guys from Leicester you know so uh, that ad really is suggestive of a lot of things still going on in the background that we're not privy to that we don't know and maybe it was just ignorance you know Paul's like well I'm hoping it's going to come out but we'll just be a new band I mean you know no time wasters please so that ad goes in 
And the interesting thing about that is when you go back into the Village Voice, you look at it, public notices, and that's the section that this ad appeared, were charged at $1.90. Go get your copy of Kistory. Don't drop it on your foot and uh, open it up and you can <laughs> see the receipt. Look at that receipt. It's December the 1st, so that's the deadline. It's for $7.60. It was only meant to run in one issue of Village Voice on December the 7th. And as we now know, it ran again on December the 14th. So had they already started their auditions between the 7th and the 14th? Was there that first week really, really bad? And Paul's like, I'm putting in another freak. Well, he would have had to put in the ad by the 7th for it to, you know, then show up in the 14th issue. So those sorts of things leave a lot of questions still to be answered. And I don't think anyone's going to get an answer out of Paul Stanley. Well, do you remember why you placed the ad twice in the Village Voice in 1972? Paul, he would just look at you like you're complete, you know, I'm trying to think of something polite, but he looked like you're utterly mad. You're, no, you're, you're a lunatic. You are absolutely certifiable to even ponder those sorts of things. He looked so, at you like you're an elder fan. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> so we've got the ad placed on December 1st, just a few days after the failed showcase for Epic. And it's amazing what happens. Uh, 30 or so people show up for the auditions. And there's some discussion as to when this all came about or when things happened. But that's that's history at this point, right? That's 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 this band's history. Uh, while they were living it, there wasn't someone in the corner taking you know litigious notes. So, but if you take a look at all their different autobiographies and all the books written about Kiss, we can kind of put some of it together, right? Yeah. Yeah, they, they each had uh, similar but slightly divergent recollections of what happened. Lydia notes that the auditions were nightly and that Peter would come home and give her kind of a progress report. Mm. They do talk They do talk about uh, Bob Kulik coming in. Yes. Paul and... describes it as like an endless freak show or something, right? Like of people coming in. Yeah, I like Paul's a long and fruitless freak show. Generous. <laughs> But they didn't fit the look. Paul Paul makes a point of saying that Bob Kulik was a really good player, but he didn't fit the look. So they had a look in mind. So they figure we've got the the darker hair, the makeup of some sort. We're going to do something visually, right? No matter what it is. It's going to be glam. We, the, we can pretty much be safe and assume that that's what's going on right we can all agree on that yes and it's interesting because if i'm remembering things correctly i think gene in his first book mentioned something about a black guy coming in an african-american man coming in to audition who was a great guitar player a good singer i think with whom gene had to have the conversation about you know we're looking for a unified appearance and talented as you are nice guy as you are if we are if we have someone who's a markedly different in terms of their appearance it, it's not going to work as a unified picture mm -hmm. uh, and how understanding the guy was about it but they had already had white face on so yeah. why couldn't they have thought a reverse al jolson you know? oh. well they did have white face on but then they also took this picture i don't know december i think it's a picture it's i think it's the first picture of the four once ace joined of the four guys, and it was like a promotional picture, and they're not wearing white face, right? Mm -hmm. The white face sort of Be because uh, let's go back, let's take a step back to the why. Because by that time, Billy Mercia had died in the dolls, and Peter had auditioned for the dolls, right? Mm. So they had reverted from mime white face to dolls. You know, dolls were about to get their record deal as well. So I, I totally get why they then went from whiteface to glam, to glam, you know, mm. to, to hooker chic. And it, it makes more sense with what was going on in, in the glam world or the glam scene of New York City, which to all intents and purposes is just talking about the dolls. And again, right. you know, this is a, a scene I think we really had to have been there to understand it better as, you know, what was going on in the world of the dolls. But, you know, Peter's friendship with Jerry Nolan, Jerry becoming the drummer in the dolls, this is all kind of happening around the same time as the Epic Showcase, as 
all, all of that taking place. So becoming like a second dolls, like a dolls with a good catalog of music, perhaps mm-hmm. would be make sense. <laughs> but you know, for the for the black guy, the African American guy, uh, that story never made sense to me when I when I think back and see that that blank palette that they had by using the white face, they could have had anyone in there if they were already thinking that this is a blank canvas, that we can become whatever we're going to be, then that just wasn't quite the right answer. And then you look forward to the Phantom and Black Ace. So. Yeah, I was going to say, they, they finally did get a black lead guitarist in 1978. And how many members were in the, the Dolls? Five, right? No, was it? David, Jerry, uh, Arthur, Sylvian. Shows how much I know about the doll. So you've got Billy, Arthur, Johnny, Sylvan, and David Johansson. So basically, they were the glam version of the Rolling Stones. So there had to be a glam version of the Beatles. Who better than Gene, Mm -hmm. Paul, Peter, and guitarist yet to be determined? I mean, think Uh, about that. They didn't. They they weren't down with having a a black guy there, but apparently they didn't mind. Or at least Peter didn't mind having a Chinese guy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you both know what I'm referring to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently when Ace auditioned, Peter came home said I to Lydia, I think we found the guy. He's, he's skinny, he's a good guitar player, and he's Chinese. And then proceeded, and in an effort to make him feel comfortable, to make Ace feel welcomed into the, into the band, quote, Peter let him know just how much he loved Chinese food. Ace just stared blankly at him. <laughs> I love that. Which I think it's that great absolutely yeah. hilarious. Fantastic. So, so we all know the famous story about how, whether it's apocryphal or whether it's on the money, but as the story goes, as the legend is often told, Bob Kulik was auditioning, and Ace just came in and wanted to play. Right, he wanted to jump ahead and actually interrupt Bob Kulik's audition. Right, that's that's <clears> the <throat> long, that's the long told legend. That's a story, yeah. but it may not be the story. Yeah, no, and and all of the stories have been pretty consistent in what happened. I think it's the fans and us who have kind of put more into that because when you say that he walked into the audition, plugged in, and started playing, you automatically assume. That Bob Kulix up there playing his guitar, jamming away with Paul and Gene, having a great vibe. They're, you know, thrashing through Deuce. And Bob's letting rip all these wonderful riffs that you can hear in his soloing style of the time by going to listen to some of the Michael Wendroff albums. And then they stop dead in their tracks. The music comes to a halt. There's feedback echoing through the stacks of marshals behind them. And they look over at the Chinese guy and tell him to shut the heck up. (laughs) And none of the stories that they've told actually suggest that at all. What they suggest in each one of them, you go read Paul's biography, autobiography, Gene's, Peter's, Ace's, and interviews with Bob. That Bob was just standing there talking with Gene and and Paul, that it was in between auditions, and Uh then Ace kind of plugs in and starts noodling. You know, if I walked into a situation like that and just saw people kind of hanging out casually talking, I think it would be perfectly fine to plug in and warm up my fingers too. I don't think there's anything unreasonable about what might have been closer to the reality of the situation. I don't think, you know, Bob was going his full Ziggy or his full Mick Ronson and Ace just, you know, started guitar warring him. No. Mm-hmm. So, and and none, none of the evidence that we have from interviews going back or in their books suggest otherwise. I think it's right. uh, wishful thinking by fans who love drama. Mm. Well, here's a quote. Eventually, we plugged in with him, and almost from the minute we started playing, something happened that took us to a completely different place. The combination of the four of us was so much bigger than anything we'd done with the other guitar players. We weren't the greatest musicians, but the chemical reaction of the four of us was potent. One minute, we had been one thing, and a minute later, with this guy named Ace Fraley, we became something else, something undeniable. I was absolutely stunned. Paul? That, yeah, that was Paul Stanley, right? Mm. Yeah. Julian? That's actually really sweet. 
Yeah, mm. that, that that really paints it. You know, Paul has such a way with words um, to express. Really, that captures the moment so perfectly for someone who wasn't there. And one can just imagine, and, and again, it goes back to my comments of what did those songs sound like before you added the seasoning of a lead guitarist? Mm-hmm. And as Ace says, you know, he went in there and pretty much threw all of his licks and all of his riffs into it. It, it must have been an absolutely stunning moment for those guys to start feeling something. I mean, here they are. They've woodshedded the, to death the songs that they're performing. They've played Deuce for Ace once, and he's listened. Presumably he wasn't continuing to warm up while they were playing Deuce for him through the first run-through, and then said, Ace, join on in. What what can you add to this cauldron of ingredients so that it becomes magical? Absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. There are classic, perfect, recognizable Ace Frehley uh, licks that you can hear in their first demos and you can hear all the way up to dark light on the elder uh that have never exited his repertoire and i'm just imagining you know that that he brought the, i mean he says as much right he says i played ev- i something like uh I've, i played every lick i had uh and they're so perfect and they're such important parts of the the classic kiss sound I have no doubt whatsoever that that moment was every bit as uh, important and perfect as everyone has said it was. Mm-hmm. Like a lightning bolt out of the blue. Yeah. The clouds opened and light shone down. And then the foot squished them all. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Sorry. In, in this week, it's impossible. But also think of the kind of the emotions going on in that room. We get again from the books that it was a very mercenary process. You know, Gene's been suggested uh, actually threatened a said he was going to kick his ass if he didn't you know if he's a time waster that the band that was having applicants fill out <laughs> applications you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's like what sort of scene is that and then you have to perform then it's time to shut up and you play and the bravado with which ace approaches it yeah you know those acisms those are the the, the core you know to a very identical style that the band has with this music. So again, I get a very Monty Python feel from this whole rehearsal thing. And hopefully when they do a <laughs> biopic or documentary on it, they're able to give it a little bit of humor for, you know, it's very dark humor, this whole rehearsal mm-hmm. and audition process. R.I.P. Terry Jones. Yeah, really. But before this happened, uh, Ace mentions that, First, he had to make it through a phone call with Paul Stanley, which was the first step. Questions about looks and styles. And Ace says that if you take the... Yes. So Ace also had Hmm. to... Is that true, Julian? Well, I don't know if it's true. I mean, I've read the same thing you've read, um, which suggests that the inane phone call that Peter was tortured with uh, was also kind of the first pass for other other people now i'm questioning it i really think he may be conflating it with peter's story because i i really think when ace did no regrets he didn't really remember that much and he read a lot of stories and then built his book around that because when you read paul's and jeans and they start talking about guys showing up wearing nehru jackets who didn't speak english well if they had also gone through the phone process surely they would have weeded out the guys who like i'm a professional spanish guitarist you know right barcelona you know so i think ace's story is actually just a conflation with peter's i don't think they did phone interviews more any more than saying hey we're doing auditions on this day come on down and then they did the multiple days as is recounted in Lydia's book. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also some foggy details, I'm going to call them. Uh, Ace suggests that the open edition was on January 3rd and that he had a couple weeks to consider. But the timeline gets messed up because Lydia Chris has been adamant in saying that Ace had joined the band by Christmas of 1972. The timeline works in favor of Lydia, who was there. Um, versus Ace and his memory. I And again, think of the timeline. Village Voice, December the 7th. You know, after that, they're getting phone calls. So December the 8th, they're getting phone calls. 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. I'm not going to count all the way. But, you know, there's a lot of time. There's several weeks between the 8th and December the 25th. 
more than enough time for them to have done a lot of rehearsals, more than enough time for them to have brought, you know, Ace back for a second one. Mm -hmm. And in terms of Lydia being adamant about that, it makes more sense when you then think of what happens after the new year with, uh, you know, heading towards that first show. Mm -hmm. Ace brought liquor to Christmas with Peter and Lydia. So, I mean, at least according to Lydia's book. So, so that also helps back that up as well. Yeah. Ace also asserts that people who wanted to audition for the band had to fill out an application, which Ace bothered not to do, and that Gene <laughs> seemed to be running the show and threatened to kick Ace's ass if he was a fuck-up because Gene didn't want anyone wasting his time. Uh, they played Deuce and suggest the guys show up to see him play at a club and then they did another rehearsal with him. And of course, we need to mention that Ace was adorned with the legend of the two different color sneakers, one orange and one red. And uh, I remember buying back when you could get the Chuck Taylors really cheap for like, you know, $3.99 in the 80s, I would get two different colors. And I, I did that thing for, for a short, for a hot minute back in the 80s. So. It was a sweet story about So you really thought about it, but Ace, yeah, Ace didn't. Ace just was yeah. in a rush, as he, he said, to get out of the house and just grab two shoes. I mean, has anyone ever, you know, put their shoes on, you know, on the wrong foot? Well, usually you'd fix it first, but, uh, you know, you do have socks that are made, designed for left or right foot, and sometimes they end up on the wrong mm -hmm. foot. So, you know, that's just, a, that's just a funny story that speaks about what an oddball he is. I think the thing in there that really is, again, of more interest is... They had they asked Gene and Paul to show up and see him play with the band he was playing with. I want to know more about that, and I don't have any answers mm -hmm. about it. I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Again, is that conflating Peter Chris's story with his own lack of memories? Because I thought he was already out of Malimo at this point by yeah. this time, even though yeah, even though they remained friendly with Tom and Roy from the band into 73 into 74 as well. So again, I think that might be conflation. But if it's not, then I want to know which band it was he was playing and where they were playing. Well, you mentioned Malimo. Let's play a little bit of, of them right now. This is the band Ace was in before he wound up joining this thing that would be called Kiss. So here is Malimo. Western wind, reach out and touch my of yesterday East of yesterday my rivers ran wild Past the weathered pine trees and the crusted mountain peaks And past the yellow sun and the house where Snow White sleeps Past the silver highways the wooded glens and byways Wasn't Ace in a band called the Ducky Boys? Yeah, well, it wasn't a band. It was a gang. Yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. Exactly. So Fair there enough. you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the thing that Peter laughed about, that he wasn't too sure how tough, a, uh, how street a guy was who had been in a gang called the Ducky Boys. Right. So versus the the Phantom, what is it? Uh, Phantom, Phantom Lords. Lords right? Yeah. Phantom that was Peter's Lords. thing. And yeah. Which, you know, there's an alternate reality out there where there was a movie called Kiss Meets the Phantom Lords of the Park. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, once again, just just keep in mind. They, sorry, they had to battle the ducky boys who stole the talisman. <laughs> yes. With Black Lee guitar player. That was also Ace's stunt double. So, there you go. It all comes together at some point. So we're going from the end of August 
to the beginning from from the end of August 1972 to the beginning of January 1973. And we now have a guy named Ace who has joined the band. We know the legend of him joining the band. We know the legend of Peter joining the band. We know the legend of what would become Kiss. So at this point, they don't even have a name. Not only are they abandoned whiteface or glam, but they don't even have a name at this point. So here we go. One of the most amazing moments in history to me is this time. This is this is something that's fantastic. Uh, would you not agree, guys? It's the stuff of legends. It's from, yeah, this is this is you know some of the most interesting material in history for me. Now we don't know the exact date that this conversation happened. But we know that by the end of January 1973, KISS would be performing in clubs. KISS would have their first dates. So we go from Ace joining the band, according to Lydia, around Christmas time, to now they've got to come up with a name. And they're all in the car, driving around with Peter Chris and Paul brainstorming ideas. They come up with such things as albatross. And eventually someone says, fuck. And at that, Gene, wasn't it Gene that said fuck? I don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering whether that was... That's a, one story. Yeah, yeah. Was that an exclamation of it when someone made a stupid suggestion? Come on, how about Crimson Harpoon? Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> but whether it was an intentional uh, proposal for a band name or whether it was just, uh, as Julian said, perhaps they were reacting to something shitty... Uh, Paul Stanley casually suggests Kiss. According to Lydia, it's because they were driving around uh, on the Long Island Expressway and Paul spotted the Casina Boulevard exit, K-I-S-S-E-N-A, and said, how about Kiss? Paul has said that Kiss could be the kiss of death, the kiss of passion. It's memorable. It's short. You remember it, though. Ace suggests the conversations went on for a while. Peter had been in lips, to which Paul responded, Kiss. While Paul may have come up with the name Kiss, Ace came up with the logo, and the first use of the refined logo was in August, though the original would be used throughout the year. So we now have a name. We now have a logo. But Kiss was just Kiss. They had not yet become Kiss. Sound good, guys? I'll be there. I like it. I think this band. I think this band has potential. Personally, yeah, they might go somewhere, right, Julian? I think he's a he's a real contender. He's got a <laughs> gleam in his eye. That's and right. some moxie and a look of a champion. And a look of a champion, a real champion. And they've got guns. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> And that is our show for today. We want to thank you for listening and being part of the podcast. Thank you for being with us since 2006. It's, it's crazy, but thank you so much for being part of it with us. Until next time, be safe. See you on the next episode of your podcast. And that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and iTunes. And wherever podcasts can be found. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podkiss at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and an amazing message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kewitt, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken Mills, and the whole rest of the Podcast family, thank you for listening to Podcast the KISS fanzine for your ears.